and welcome once again to the Necromancers of the Northwest weekly podcast. We've got a great show for you today as Josh and I compete to see who can better equip a minion, and Josh takes a look at a book devoted to the weapons of medieval European legend. All that's in a little while, though. Right now, it's time for a little segment we like to call Best Beasts. The monster on the chopping block today? The Frog Hemoth. Frog Hemoth. Say the word with me. Frog Hemoth. That's a fun word. It's a bit silly, perhaps, but that's part of the magic of the frog hemoth. It doesn't take itself seriously. You know that it doesn't take itself seriously, not only because of its name, but because of its description. An alien from another planet in my fantasy game might as well grab the ray guns and anal probes. But, besides that, the frog hemoth is a cool monster. Did you see that picture of it from the Pathfinder role-playing game core rulebook, where it was wrestling that dinosaur into submission while the PCs cowered in fear behind a bush? That's right. The frog hemoth can be as cool and beloved as the Spinosaurus from Jurassic Park 3. If that isn't the height of cool, then I don't know what is. Alright, fine. I'll admit it. <clears throat> I was supposed to argue for the frog hemoth being a cool monster, but I just can't do it. Don't get me wrong, I actually do like the frog hemoth, and I think it's a fun monster in a cheesy, guilty pleasure kind of way. Just thinking about being able to tell my players that they face a frog hemoth makes me smile. But cool? That's one thing the frog hemoth is unabashedly not. Of course, maybe it's a zen kind of thing. The frog hemoth is so unconcerned about whether it's cool or not, and is happy enough just doing its own thing, that it becomes cool just by being itself. That's what after-school specials teach, anyway. And if that's your rubric, the frog hemoth is probably the coolest monster of them all. Besides, no matter how you slice it, I'd rather use a frog hemoth than an otyug. Am I right? No, you're wrong. The frog hemoth is so obviously stupid and uncool that I don't even feel like I need to argue it. They're big tentacled frog things. I mean, what were they thinking? They have three eyes. Why? They have partial immunity to electricity. Why? What makes them immune to electricity? Who has partial immunity? Uh, in fact, its immunity is its weakness. What's the point of this creature? It's like they sat down and at a meeting and someone was like, Hey, I have a really bad idea for a monster, which makes no sense, isn't cool, and isn't even very original. I mean, come on, it's a big tentacled monster with three eyes that lives in a swamp. And they said, Yeah, okay, let's throw it in as a joke. Oh, I know. Let's make it even make even less sense by making it immune to electricity. And the first guy says, what if he's only partially immune to electricity? Oh, I like that. And let's call it a frog hemoth. There isn't a single cool thing about frog hemoths, and therefore they must be uncool. So what do we really think about frog hemoths? Well, I gotta say, even though they're not cool, I, I still think that you can get some mileage out of them in your game. Uh, if all you're looking for is a slimy thing to pop up out of the pit and growl and then try to eat the PCs, you could do a lot worse than a frog hemoth. While that might technically be true, uh, you might have to weaken the frog hemoth substantially as they are CR 13 monsters, uh, which makes them unusable early, uh, whereas things like Otyugs could be advanced if you needed them late. Uh, so I'm not sure they really have that utility. But yeah, if you just need a big slavering thing with a lot of tentacles and a big growl, you could probably do worse than a frog hemoth. Really? You're really going to play up the Otyug here? The uh, look at me, I'm a big square thing with tentacles that leaves, lives entirely on trash? Okay, first of all, they tell you it's trapezoidal, and uh, I don't know, I like the Otyug for some reason. It's got, you know, spiky tentacles, and its eyes are on a tentacle. And, uh, yeah, okay, the Otyug isn't very good either. <laughs> That's what I thought. But now it's time for us to turn to our review. So it's time for us to review a product, and I've chosen yet another book with 101 in the name. 
This one's called 101 Legendary Treasures of Medieval Europe and comes to us from a company called Ronin Arts. Now this 40-page PDF clearly wasn't designed for Pathfinder and it's clearly stated in the book's introduction that the book is designed for use with the traditional third edition of D&D. This doesn't necessarily mean you can't use it for your Pathfinder game, though you should expect to encounter some antiquated language and some spells which don't necessarily exist anymore. Uh, keeping in mind that if you actually want to use this product for your Pathfinder game, you're going to need to do a fair amount of work yourself, translating the information contained within to be a bit more modern. Let's go ahead and get on with the review. So the book opens with a table of contents, a pair of introductions, one from the publisher, talking about how he's proud to present the first book in their 101 series, which isn't in which he isn't the author, and one from Jason McKay, the author of the book, talking about what the product contains and his inspiration. Uh, the table of contents is a bit redundant with the PDF's bookmarks, but I still like to see one. It just makes the whole product feel more done. Um, the two introductions serve to alert us as to the, what the product will contain, but not particularly more effectively than the book's title, 101 Legendary Treasures of Medieval Europe. Speaking of which, let's talk a bit about what this PDF is really about. So in essence, this product presents us with 101 legendary treasures which feature prominently in the history and folklore of medieval Europe, made into artifacts for the third edition of D&D. These artifacts are arranged chronologically by era, based on when the item was featured in literary, historical, or folkloric tradition, and then arranged alphabetically. Uh, being a book which contains only artifacts, one might be understandably concerned about the power level of the items present. The author makes some mention of this before we actually move on to start the items within uh, our powerful artifacts, which may have a negative impact on game balance, particularly those from the Age of Legends, defined as before proper history, uh, particularly at lower levels. He then goes on to say that doesn't necessarily mean that these artifacts can't be collected by lower level players looking to give them out as quest items or to be destroyed. He then goes on to give us rules for the items in this book, which basically state that their effects created by the items are cast by a caster level of at least 15, and that they have a plus 50 bonus to saving throws and can't be destroyed or repressed with distilling magic, meaning that to destroy them, special circumstances must be researched and met. Uh, all pretty standard boilerplates for a book that's going to be 101 artifacts. Then we move on to the artifacts themselves which consists of a history, physical description section, as well as a special abilities section, which explains how the item actually works. As a general rule, the item's backstory sections are too short and fail to tell us any meaningful part of the item's story. On the one hand, this makes me kind of mad. Uh, all the items have well-established backgrounds and histories, and there really isn't any good reason not to give us the whole story. On the other hand, there really isn't any reason I can't find out more about these items myself, um, for the same reason. They have very well-established backstories. Meanwhile, the special abilities sections tend, tells us what special powers the artifacts have, and in general, these tend to be fairly confusingly written and inconsistent. Uh, it may just be that I've gotten used to the Pathfinder format, but uh, the formatting, the archaic language, and inconsistency of terminology both confuse and irritate me time and time again. Conspicuously missing is any information on how one might destroy the item, despite the apparent emphasis placed on this task by the author earlier in the book. Uh, the product just sort of leaves you hanging. So let's look at some legendary treasures. First up, we have the Age of Legends, which, as I said before, is defined as the time before proper history, containing items such as the Ark of the Covenant and the Golden Fleece. In general, this is the most powerful section of the book, with the artifacts being intended for epic characters or as quest items. Overall, this selection of items is fairly good, and this is the section where you encounter most of the items of mythological origin, 
The most interesting item in this section is probably the Eye of Odin, which is arguably the only item in the book which references the Norse tradition. The Eye is cool because you have to remove part of your one of your own eyes to use the item, like the Eye of Vecna. The mechanics of this eye are unfortunately are very boring, pumping your wisdom, strength, and constitution scores while bilking your charisma and dexterity, then granting you some spell-like abilities. In fact, pretty much every item in the book works like that, uh, though usually without the drawbacks, uh, lacking unique or interesting abilities, and instead falling back on super powerful stat boosters, ridiculously overhyped weapon enchantments, and uh, immunities and resistances, and you know just laving on the spe spell-like abilities. Uh, while there's nothing strictly wrong with this approach, there's everything wrong with this approach. It's boring, it makes the items powerful, not special. Uh, of course, a handful of items actually do have unusual abilities. For instance, anyone who touches the Ark of the Covenant dies unless they succeed on a DC 50 fortitude save. And anyone who isn't lawful good gets punished for trying to use the powerful artifact, which uh, offers a number of destructive spell-like abilities at really high caster levels at will. We'll call down some Solars with a chance of seeing an Archangel. Uh, with the annotation that they should be treated as a lesser god. The Archangel, that is. Evil characters uh, may see as many as 34 Solars and all four Archangels. So, moving on to the next era, we deal mostly with the latter part of the BCE, and see mostly items which belong to larger-than-life historical or biblical characters, such as King Solomon or Alexander the Great. We get a lot of tome-like items here, which again grant stat bonuses and spell-like abilities. Uh, we still see items whose power level borders on unusable, but hey, they're artifacts, right? Right. Moving on, we end up with we end up in the common era. Uh, yes, covering 100 to 450 CE. This section is mostly Christian religious artifacts and items belonging to Roman heroes and their enemies, featuring things like the Spear of Destiny and Judas Iscariot's coin purse. This is also when the power level starts to die down a little bit, though some items are still basically unplayable. A set of rings called the Seven Rings of the Seven Planets of Apollius of Tinea is probably the worst offenders, with each ring being incredibly powerful on their own, and the set being more so. On the other hand, finally we see an item which offers a useful amount of SR. You get 50 with the set, and up to 10 levels of spell turning, possibly a day. But that's as uh, long as there's a number of other special abilities you get is, uh, is unclear. Uh, up next is the early mid Middle Ages, up to about 1050, and includes a number of items from the literary tradition, including the Arm of Grendel, the Staff of Merlin. It uh, is more the same sort of thing, though. Uh, it's considerable drop in power level. The items here aren't especially more game-breaking than the horribly game-breaking artifacts you find in the regular DMG. Uh, and it's really just sort of continues on like that this book uh, as time goes on the artifacts which were simply personal belongings of historical figures like uh, Frederick Barbarossa's flail coming out of or coming out of 1920 serials such as the dread Necronomicon overall the artifacts in this book are more or less what you'd expect to find in something called 101 legendary treasures of Europe though there are some conspicuous absences namely Excalibur and Durandal uh, though both the Horn of Roland and the Staff of Merlin do make uh, do make it in. Strange, uh, though, that we miss the most iconic items from the matter of France and England. So is there anything I like about this book? Well, the art's okay, though you don't get an abundance of it, and the layout and formatting is quite good. As for the content, though, not really. Uh, there isn't anything I like about it. The concept, I think, was sound, and I like the idea, but for my part, at least you don't get anything useful with this book. 
You can find all the information about the legendary treasures of Europe elsewhere. Uh, and you can find information about treasures from other parts of the world on the internet as well. Asia has a lot of interesting stuff. So does Africa. And this PDF doesn't really cover any of that. Uh, so, personally, I think that most uh, DMs who have some experience with item design are going to do better themselves than they would get for this book. They're going to come up with something that's going to be more useful, and it's going to fit better with what they're doing at the time they're doing it. Now, in complete fairness to the designer, a product that's 101 artifacts is a major undertaking. It's very ambitious. It's something that probably needed a lot more time and effort than ended up being put into the book, uh, and that doesn't fit a lot of production schedules. So you would really need to spend a lot of time to come up with, with something better where you needed to cover the whole breadth of Europe's very rich history of legendary items. So let's talk a little bit about value. Uh, you can't find this PDF on DriveThruRPG, but it is available for five ninety five at the publisher's website. Uh, for 40 pages and at $5.95, what you get is not worth it. I would not give up your morning latte, your morning mocha, your morning donut. Just, just stick with it. And now it's time for today's feature presentation as Josh and I go head-to-head -head trying to see who can better equip our minions for a series of challenges. For this, in order to keep things properly scientific, we're going to be using essentially the same minion. We took a minion at random by the name of Carl. He's a six-level ranger. And we've cloned him multiple, multiple times. Uh, so all of the actual minions being used will be completely identical in every way, except for their gear. The gear in question will be selected by myself and Josh separately. Uh, we have an allowance of 6,000 GP, the appropriate, uh, the appropriate amount for a six-level PC. And we're going to see which of us can better equip him to handle a series of challenges. These challenges we did not know in advance. Uh, they were provided for us by the powers that be uh, for us to test our, our powers at equipping our minions. Uh, and finally, as one final challenge to make things more interesting and difficult for the both of us, we're both going to be going up against our third silent partner who has been here for all of these podcasts, but which you may not have noticed because you can't see him. Some say that he's the sole reason for the changes to polymorph effects in the Pathfinder role-playing game. Some say that he's never rolled a one in his life. He has no face. He has no voice. He's known only by his gamer handle, The Critical Threat. He will serve as the third contestant in each of these challenges. Now, uh, now that we've got that taken care of and you know the basic rules for what's going to be going on here, Josh and I are both going to take a moment to discuss what it is that we've bought to outfit our Carl's and how uh, and why. So, um, going over what I have here first, I was mostly looking when I went through at powerful one-shot effects because I know that really Carl doesn't need to be doing what he's going to be doing for that long. There's only five challenges, and so as long as he's got something that will give him a good boost for each of those challenges, then he should be able to get by. So I've equipped him with two of my quite possibly favorite utilitarian item of all time, the Feather Token Tree, uh, which, by the way, uh, for those of you listening at home, uh, do not try using the Feather Token Tree at your game unless you want to give your DM a heart attack and possibly compel him to rip your face off. At the very least, make sure you use it responsibly. Uh, moving on from there, I did pick up a robe of bones, 
Uh, some of you might consider this an odd choice for a non-necromancer, uh, like Carl, who will, uh, who will not be able to control any of the creatures created by the robe. But the, the value for gold, even if you can't control them, seems really high to me, and I think he's going to make good use out of it. Uh, I've also thrown in a few potions. Invisibility, Alter Self, and Spider Climb are all generally useful. Uh, I did also blow a thousand gold on him for a plus two Flaming Frost Shock Arrow, uh, which I'm hoping will get him out of a tight spot. From there, it's all pretty basic material. We've got a scimitar, arrows, breastplate, grappling hook, some rope, a backpack, bullseye, lantern, some oil. He's got a light horse in case there's a race of some kind. Uh, and some gear for that, and then obviously he's got an explorer's outfit, so he's ready for whatever kind of weather he encounters. So, my Carl is outfitted a little bit differently. Starting with the uh, weapons and armor, I didn't feel the need for heavy armor like breastplate, so I bought him down to studded leather, because you get the most uh, protection from the least amount of armor check penalty. And, you know, he's got a bow, so he's probably never going to get hit by anything anyway. Um, I also got rid of the scimitar and used the money to buy arrows. Uh, so he now has, in terms of magical gear, a ring of feather falling, because if he needs to climb anything and he falls, it will save him. If he needs to jump any chasms and he falls, it will save him. If he needs to jump down from somewhere high to see how much fall damage he takes, he will probably win that challenge. It's a really great item for just sort of mucking about. I thought it would help me in all sorts of different situations, mostly where Carl's going to be falling. Uh... As opposed to one really powerful arrow, I went for a 10x6 fireball bead. You get more extra damage on it, and it's going to affect a lot more people for only a little bit more money. Uh, I bought him a salve of slipperiness, because if there's any kind of monster who can grapple, um, Carl's in real trouble as a, uh, as a creature who isn't a monster who's big and good at grappling. And the salve, uh, for a surprisingly little amount of money, can really even up the odds with a plus 20 bonus. Uh, finally, I got him a uh, potion of fly, which is useful for all kinds of situations. Need to race? You can fly away. There's something big and scary? You can fly away. You need to get somewhere high? You can fly away. The, uh, it also does double duty with the ring of feather falling. Say I get too excited with my potion of fly, and I fall. Still safe. Meanwhile, the critical threat chose yet another approach. Yes, and since he can't tell you about it, I'm going to do so. Uh, he decided to go a little more straight-laced and, uh, and be prepared for the long haul, I guess. Uh, he's equipped his Carl with a plus one composite longbow with a strength bonus of up to plus two, uh, plus one breastplate, uh, cloak of resistance plus one, a masterwork scimitar, a potion of cat's grace, a potion of blur, and a potion of cure light wounds. We tried asking him why he chose these things, and he simply growled at us and rolled some dice. So, whatever the case, we're going to go ahead and move on now to our first challenge. And the first challenge of the day is, hang on a moment, I'm being handed a piece of paper here. It says, magic items are a symbol of status for adventurers, and to prove your so-called hero's worth to the world, we will evaluate the GP value of your most expensive magic item, and you will receive one point for each 100 GP in the item's price. Well, that's pretty straightforward, if not necessarily the most uh, deadly of challenges. So why don't we take a quick look at what we've got here. Josh, what is the most expensive thing you bought for your minion? Ring of Featherfall, 2,200 GP. Well, that's impressive, but I think I've got you beat. My robe of bones costs 2,400 GP. Uh, what, what's that? 
Ah, I see. It appears that we've both been beaten by the critical threat. In this case, his plus one composite longbow with a plus two strength bonus is worth 2,600 GP. So it looks like we both lose the first round challenge to the critical threat, but that's fine. That's only the first of many challenges. I'm sure we'll make it back up as time goes on. So I've got another challenge here, and it looks like this one says, the Basilisk is a CR4 monster. Your minions, with their equipment, are each CR6. Can they kill a Basilisk? Let's find out. So first up is Josh's minion, um, and there he's heading out there to the arena. It looks like uh, the gates are opening, and there's the Basilisk. It's clearly one initiative. It's rushing out to Carl, but uh, Carl's making his save there. It looks like he's not petrified just yet. He's firing some shots point blank right into that basilisk, and he I see I see two hits, and then oh oh it looks like uh, looks like looks like Carl's been turned to stone. So that was uh, that was one down. It looks like uh, my minion's up next. All right, let's see if Alex's minion can fare any better against the basilisk. Carl's the first to act. He uses one of those feather token trees to create a tree directly underneath him. The kindly arbiter of this event seems to think that Carl ends up safely at the top of the tree and not horribly impaled on the branches or crushed against the arena's ceiling. Clearly, he hasn't dealt with feather token trees before. Uh, the basilisk moves 40 feet closer. All right. 20 feet of arena and 60 feet of tree separate Carl and the beast. The young bounty hunter detaches from his patch of his robe for some unknown reason. What's this? A wolf skeleton? Ah, yeah, it's the robe of bones. The wolf immediately charges the basilisk, biting into its scaly flesh. Momentarily distracted by the creature, the basilisk is at Carl's mercy for a few rounds as he hastily fires arrows from atop his treetop perch. For Carl, though, the reprieve is too short. When the basilisk's jaws finally crush the creature into powder, he panics throwing down one of his other uh, patches from his cloak. A human skeleton, or human zombie, apparently. Oh, and it, it's gone, too. Oh, that was, that was a nasty bite. All right, the, ba the basilisk is climbing the tree now. Carl is shooting through the foliage, and it's not gone well. And the basilisk is sliding down the tree now. All right, and uh, Carl seems to have recovered himself a little bit. He's uh, firing less shots, not rapid shotting through the branches, noting that the uh, minus two to his attacks might be all the difference between hitting that uh, Basilisk with its AC improved by cover. Uh, the It's taken damage, looks like. He's getting there. The Basilisk begins climbing up the tree again, only to slide back to the ground again. Sensing desperation, Carl keeps shooting. Unfortunately, the basilisk seems to get the hang of this climbing thing. It's ten feet up the tree. Arrows from above opening grievous wounds in the creature now. It's twenty feet up the tree. Carl can taste his victory. The basilisk is desperate to save its life. What will happen? It ascends another ten feet, and Carl is petrified also. Six hit points away from killing the creature. Tragedy. All right, uh, next looks like it's the Critical Threats turn. Yes, so the Critical Threats minion is is up and at the door. It looks like uh, looks like we're ready to go. The the Basilisk is released, but the Critical Threats minion has the uh, has the jump on him and fires off a couple of arrows, uh, one miss and one hit. 
Then the basilisk moves up 40 feet, and oh, that was quick. Looks like uh, looks like the critical threats minion is is down for the count. And uh, you know anyone who's looking for some statuary, we have some minions for you here. Uh, in the meantime, it looks like it's time to move on to our third challenge. Uh, we've uh, we've recruited some other Carl minions for uh, for this. We've got got a number of backup clones. We anticipated this sort of thing, so uh, we've re-equipped them with uh, with the same gear minus whatever was used, and it's time to move on to this third challenge, which appears to be your minions are rangers. Everyone knows that rangers are good at going through the wilderness, so they're going to run a race. Yes. Good for me. I got a horse. A race through a dangerous, swampy, unpleasant wilderness. Less good. But, moving on, let's take a look. It, it looks like it's going to tell us a little bit about this course. Uh, it looks like we've got 180 feet of plains uh, separated by a short fence that would need to be jumped or climbed over. At the end of that 180 feet of plains, there is a 30-foot sheer vertical cliff, which must be climbed. And then after that, there's another 120 feet of rough, brambly forest that must be navigated through. Uh, according to this, uh, it looks like, unbeknownst to our minions here, we have planted a couple of traps in that region. Uh, we've got a snare trap and then a quicksand trap. Both of these are from our book, The Art of Traps, which you can get on DriveThruRPG or Paizo.com. Uh, whatever the case... After that, it looks like there is a 50-foot-wide river, which must be navigated or circumvented. Um, and finally, there's another stretch of plains bisected by another fence. So, it looks like Josh's Carl is all suited up and ready to go, and we're going to start the race. He's off to a quick start, running 90 feet, and then jumping over the fence and going an additional 30 feet, which puts him at the base of the cliff. He starts to climb. He's making slow slow progress but as he gets up near the top he seems to only be going faster no danger of falling down here and he is over the cliff now uh going 20 feet and oh there's the snare he's been uh, he's been grabbed and he is now dangling by his ankle uh from from a tree it looks like oh it looks like he's checking for his sword and he's not finding any Somebody forgot to give him a melee weapon. However, it looks like he's he's found an arrow and he's proceeding to to try and hack at the the arrow or the uh, the rope with that arrow and it's it's slow going. But oh, it looks like he's he's down now. Um, and now that he's got that, he's he's up. He's moving again. Uh, his his light armor there is allowing him to go relatively quickly through this difficult terrain. Uh, and then he's he's reached. Oh, and there's the quicksand trap. Uh, he's he's sunk five feet. Ooh, he's he's under. Uh, there's there's some bubbling and some thrashing, but I I don't see don't I, I think um, it's going kind of still there. And oh, there he is. He's he's back up. I don't know how he got back up, but he is he's back up and he is he's out of the quicksand. He's moving, he's moving. He's at the water hazard now, and uh, he's decided that he's he's going to go around the uh, going to go around that river. He is not going to go through it. So. He's, he's going around. This is definitely going to cost him some time. It looks like he has to go a full 500 feet out of his way in order to get to a, uh, in order to get to a place where he can ford the river there. Uh, but now uh, now he's back. He's going to jump over that fence, and boom, there he goes. And across the line in 23 rounds.
All right, now it's Alex's minion's turn. Okay, he's on his horse. Carl blitzes off at top speed, racing to the wall at a record time. The horse leaps over the barrier with astonishing display of agility. Unfortunately, Carl doesn't seem to know anything about animals, and he falls off the back of the horse into the mud on the wrong side of the fence. Grumbling a little bit, it looks like. He uh, stumbles over, and uh, okay, he's on the other side. And he's moving at a much reduced speed of 20 feet due to that ridiculously heavy armor he decided to buy. Okay, he's uh, he's at the cliff now. And, oh, what's this? He's got a potion in hand. Ah, potion of spider climb. Look at, look at that. He is up like it wasn't even there. All right, he's stretching through the difficult terrain. That ridiculous armor making it very hard. He's moving at the same speed as a dwarf mounted on a snail. Oh, eventually, oh! Yeah, he finally made it to the snare, snare trap. He does have a scimitar, and he cuts himself down, taking only minor fall damage. All right, he's moving ahead, and he's in the quicksand. He's sinking. Oh, what's it? Another potion? Oh, it must be his alter self potion. And look, now he's a bogard, a sort of funny-looking fella. And he's he's out like it wasn't even there. Okay, now he's gonna gonna lose some time. It looks like over the. Over the course of the next eternity, eventually, for those of you watching, I, I expect that his minion will will waddle to the uh, to the water hazard. Just uh, let's just give it a minute here. Okay, and he's there finally. All right. Uh, so now that he's at the hazard, though, I see why he decided to waddle ridiculously to water's edge. As a boggart, he's going to get across that in no time. Oh wow! A round and a half. Nine seconds flat, and now he's back to his old self. He really made up some time there. All right, he's uh, he's off running. He okay, he's at the hurdle. He leaps, and okay, he trips. All right, uh, he's up again. All right, now he's over, and he's running down the straightaway, and he finishes at 21 rounds. All right, well, he finished uh, ahead of me. Let's see if maybe the critical threat can. Uh, can do better. All right, he's off. Also in ridiculous armor, uh, but without a horse, it takes him a little bit longer to make it to the fence. Uh, he's jumping. Oh, face plant right into the side of the fence. And okay, he climbs over, ambling now another few feet ahead. Okay, he's at the cliff. He's climbing. He's climbing. Okay, he stopped. Uh, he, okay. Okay, he's climbing. He's climbing. All right, he's at the top, and uh, okay, he is he is moving slowly through that underbrush. Still slow going. Oh, oh, there's the trap, suspended. He draws his somewhat nicer scimitar and cuts himself down in the same time. Uh, ooh, hard hit on the ground. All right, he gets up. He's going. He's going. Oh, and there's the quicksand trap. Oh, that heavy armor is not doing him well now. Oh, he's he's below and. Oh, wait, uh, there he, no. Uh, is that, is that it? Is that, is that a bubble? Um, I, I think the critical threats minion may have drowned in the quicksand. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not seeing him. So I guess that's the end of his race. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, that's, uh, that's got me feeling a little bit better about these challenges. Uh, I knew there were some good ones in there. Now, it's time for us to move on to the next challenge. Uh, and I've got a piece of paper here. It looks like it says, Every good hero faces unfair odds at some point. 
To test your character's ability to handle dangerous situations, you will each be pitted against a, tyrannos a Tyrannosaurus. Okay, all right, a Tyrannosaurus, that's fine. We're only, what, six CRs above where uh, where we are? That's 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 great. I'm glad we uh, glad we got that. Anyway, uh, you will eat, you will earn one point for each round you survive the encounter to a maximum of ten points, and an additional three points if you actually kill the creature. So, as usual, we've got Josh's minion up first. Uh, looks like uh, looks like the the T Rex has got the jump on Carl, and he is uh, he's rushing up, eighty feet. And what's that? He's he's drinking a potion, and oh, that must have been the fly potion. He is off in the air. The uh, the T Rex is gonna looks like he's jumping after him, but those legs were not built for jumping. Uh, and it looks like uh, that's he's he's the T Rex has actually fallen to the ground, folks. Uh, in the meantime, Carl is whipping out that big expensive fireball bead, and he is throwing that. And uh, it looks like oh, that. Must have missed or something. That was, that was not a very big. Uh, that was not a very big explosion. I don't think that was properly made. That was only 14 damage on a 10 die 6 fireball bead. Um, anyway, the T Rex doesn't seem to have noticed. Uh, it looks like he's, he we, the the challenge here is on a is on a big plains. There's not really any place for the T Rex to run as Carl is shooting him mercilessly with uh, with arrows there. Uh, so it looks like the T Rex is just taking a, a total defense there. Uh, as as Carl is just unloading arrow after arrow, um, looks like he's slowing down a little bit, trying to focus, make those arrows count. As he's realizing that he's having trouble hitting that T Rex now that he's now that he's defending himself. Um, well, folks, this uh, this looks like this could go on for a little while. Um, and uh, and. Uh, well, okay, still a lot, lot of missed arrows there. That that ground is starting to look like a pincushion, and oh, oh, it looks like looks like Carl is out of arrows, uh, and uh, and now it looks like his fly potion is worn off, and ooh, uh, he is he is he's applying that salve of slipperiness as he as he goes to the ground, and the T Rex is he is really an angry angry dinosaur. Uh, he's he's bit Carl. Carl's trying to slip out from between his teeth, but it's it's not working. That salve of slipperiness is just not doing it for him. And ooh, down the down the gullet he goes. Still though, that took a full five minutes. Um, we uh, we sped it up here a little bit for you, but full five minutes. So he is still going to get the full ten points. And now let's see how my minion does. All right, Alex's minion. All right, Carl, who seems to win initiative here, or he gets a round in. And before the Rex gets close enough. All right, he, he quaffs his uh, third potion. It looks like, ah, he's invisible. Smart. All right, he's uh he's moving ahead out of the T-Rex's range. All right. Oh, the gargantuan monster isn't having any of this. Look at him sniff the air. Oh, he's got your number, Carl. He's coming right towards you. All right, all right. Oh, look at that. He's, uh, ah, a... What is that? An ogre zombie? Must be another guest from our robe of bones. Oh, well, so much for the ogre zombie. Uh, no match for the Tyrannosaurus as he continues on the uh, the frightened Carl's trail. All right, this cat and mouse game's going on for a while. And, oh, hey, look at that. The uh, the T-Rex seems to have, have stopped smelling, and he he's looking right at Carl. 
Looks like that plus 20 bonus and his uh, plus 11 stealth score isn't doing too much against the T-Rex's plus 32 perception. Uh, the ancient skilled hunter has, has tracked him down a, a five-foot step, and oh, he, he's been eaten. So he, he lived for nine rounds and, uh, and before he was, he was killed there, an impressive showing. Thank you. Now it's time for the Critical Threats minion. Uh, we've got high hopes for this, uh, given the Critical Threats' uh, great reputation. So let's see, let's see what he can do here. We've got uh, the, the Tyrannosaurus appears to have the initiative. He's rushing up real quick on Carl there. Uh, his uh, Car Carl's going to go ahead and drink that potion of blur we mentioned before. And it looks like he's taking a total defensive action. Not quite the uh, the brilliant offense we expected from the Critical Threat. Uh, looks like the T-Rex is coming down with a bite. That blur is not doing it for him. That is 36 damage in one bite, and it looks like looks like Carl's been grabbed. Uh, the Critical Threats minion there is attempting to escape, but those those teeth they just they just bite down real hard. And ooh, looks like looks like that's the end of the Critical Threats uh, minion there. He's he's been swallowed and died. So looks like we've got uh, two rounds that. Uh, that the critical threats minion managed to to survive on that. Now, for our final challenge, uh, we have we, we've given each of the minions a five thousand pound, thirty foot tall golden statue. And in order to win the challenge, they must get that statue thirty miles to the nearest town by whatever means necessary. Uh, further, we have populated the hills around the uh, around the statue with banditos who will steal the the statue if any of our henchmen try or if any of our minions uh, leave at any point they're not going to attack they have strict strict instructions not to do that but if the statue is ever unattended for any point in time the banditos will rush in and steal it so who can get it to the town first uh by now obviously most of our uh, most of our equipment is gone uh, and so we're, uh, we're, we're going to have our, our minions there on a bit of a, bit of a bit on the last, last legs here. Looks like we've got Josh's minion is up first and, um, it looks like he's just walking away. Um, I think, I think he's, I think he's just given up. He, he sees he doesn't have any way to, to transport it. He doesn't have anything to guard it so he can go, go hire things. He, um, looks like he is choosing to forfeit. Yeah, that was, that was, he was out of everything so yeah he's going home uh hey it looks like uh the critical threats minion is joining him uh unusual move for the critical threat oh oh but your minion isn't look at that he's uh, <laughs> that's that's right he's not he is going to attempt to to defeat this challenge unlike you two walking away without even trying well, we'll see how that that goes. I mean, he's not going to be able to move that five thousand pound statue on his own. All right, let's see what his idea is here. Oh, look at him! I see him groping that robe pretty hard. Uh, oh wow! Look, he's tearing off what looks like all the remaining patches. I, I guess he must be looking for a team to guard the statue from those banditos. Uh, oh look! Uh, there's the plague ogre zombie, the skeleton wolf, the human zombie. Wow, that's a lot of undead minions. Oh, look at that look of panic on his face as he realizes that he has no ability to control his undead minions. Uh, oh, 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 God, no. Oh, that, that, that's messy. Uh, s sorry. 
right. Well, there were another 50 where he came from. In any case, uh, it's time now for us to go over our final scores. So I've got the scoreboard here. Unfortunately, it's a podcast. You can't see it. But I'll go ahead and read it off for you. So first of all, for our prestige challenge, based on the uh, based on the prices of the items, uh, it looks like we have Joshua came in with 22 points. I came in with 24 points. And the critical threat had 26. Next up, against the Basilisk, we all uh, we all failed to defeat the Basilisk, and unfortunately there is a minus five penalty for every time your minion dies, so we each lose five points here. Uh, next up, there's the race, uh, where one point was awarded for every round in which you you exceeded the, uh, the speed of the slowest person to finish. So uh, Josh, uh, whose minion was the slowest person to finish, gets zero points. Uh, I, my minion beat his by two rounds, so that's two points for me. And then the critical threats minion, unfortunately, died uh, in giving him a negative five score. Next up is the T-Rex, where we got one round, as I said, for each uh, one point for each round that we uh, that we managed to survive. Uh, Josh got the full ten points for uh, for surviving the full ten rounds. Uh, obviously, he survived a little bit longer than that, but there was a cutoff. Uh, Next up, uh, my minion managed to last nine rounds. Very, very close to the full ten, uh, but not quite enough. Uh, and then finally, the critical threat gets only two. Uh, and then we have for the final challenge, um, zero points for Josh. Negative five as my minion died. And then uh, zero points for the critical threat. So that brings our total score out to critical threat appears to get 18. I've got 25. And Josh, thanks solely to the Robe of Bones, gets 27. So the winner here is Josh as the uh, the one who's best able to equip a minion in the Necromancers of the Northwest team. Do you have a few words to say about that, Josh? Well, it wasn't so much the equipment as it was the wisdom in uh, in my minion not choosing to kill himself on the last challenge. Uh, if if I had it to do over again, I would have bought more arrows so that I could have killed that T-Rex and earned an additional three points. But uh, but overall, I mean, it was it was it was a close race, good race, critical threat, really disappointing. But you know, I did hear him complaining earlier about what he had to work with. Rangers, I guess, not his favorite class. Well, thanks for that. And now it's going to be time for us to move on. Now, it's time to think back a bit. Don't go too far. Only a month or so should suffice. That's when this podcast first debuted the story of John the Grinning Skull Morgan, a pirate captain down on his luck with no ship, no crew, and for that matter, no skin or organs either. The skeletal captain was spending his days in the pit, a lawless bar in a lawless town, reminiscing about his glory days and wondering where it all went wrong. But when Bill Farthing, the strapped-for-cash captain of a smuggling ship, found himself in need of muscle, John found himself with the prospect of a job. He met with Bill to discuss the possibility of employment, along with two other potential hirees, unknown to John, an imposing and stoic warrior whose upper body was covered in strange runic tattoos, and a mysterious hooded man. John had so far hung back, observing the conversation as the others talked about terms. Unbeknownst to anyone at the table but the smuggling captain, him captain himself, the job was far more dangerous than simply protecting the ship from attacking pirates or sea demons. Instead, his ship, the Gentry, would be actively seeking out an unknown force attacking shipping vessels in the area, despite not being equipped or crewed for combat of any sort. 
And what does this job pay? asked the hooded man, his blue eyes now visible beneath his hood as he leaned forward. This was not the part that Bill had been looking forward to. In such straits as he was, he could ill afford to pay them much, but he also knew that he couldn't afford to do without them, a delicate balancing game. That depends on how much you're worth, he said a bit more gruffly than he'd intended. What can you do? I'm a priest, said the hooded man simply, uh, lifting up a large stone hammer that had been resting by his chair. In addition to fighting, I can heal the wounded or sick and can bring us favor against our enemies. Bill looked to the other man, the one covered in tattoos. He simply looked back, not making any effort to sell his own abilities. There didn't seem much need. Bill thought for a moment and then said, Say, weren't there supposed to be three of you? There was a slight rattling sound as John stood up and walked over to the men. Aye, Captain, there's three of us. Captain Bill Farthing looked at the skeleton with astonishment for a moment, not certain whether it was truly there or simply a product of drinking too much whiskey before bed. His mouth hung open as he struggled to determine what to say or do in the face of this entirely unexpected development. John saved him the effort. Yes, it's a moving, talking skeleton, and no, it's not here to kill you. In fact, you may have heard of me. At this, the skeleton struck a proud pose, his bony fists resting upon his waist, his chin turned up. John, the grinning skull, Morgan. If the tattooed warrior or the hooded priest were particularly impressed with this announcement, or with the animate skeleton at all, they did a good job of hiding it. For his own part, Bill did, in fact, know the name. The Grinning Skull had been a truly fearsome pirate back in his day, and when Bill was a lad, legends of the pirate's conquests and adventures had been commonplace in the common room of his father's inn. He'd always assumed the stories that the man was actually an undead skeleton were just sailor talk, but if what this thing said was true... Even if the pirate's career had ended in a spectacular show of shame and disgrace, enough to ensure that the man would never be a pirate captain again, that didn't mean that he didn't know how to fight. After all, didn't all the tales say that even sea demons fled when John, the Grinning Skull Morgan's ship, came near? Well, why don't you have a seat then, Mr. Morgan? Bill half stammered, trying to keep the nervousness out of his voice. Please, just call me John. The skeleton said glibly, the pale green flames which danced in his empty eye sockets flaring with enough intensity to show that this was by no means an attempt to put the smuggler at ease. Now then, Captain, I believe you were going to tell us how much this little shindig is worth to you. Bill thought to himself for a moment, calculating, running figures in his head, trying to figure out how little he could get away with. Two hundred gold crowns, each of you. You'll be paid when we make it safe to port, of course. Two hundred? Perhaps you really haven't heard of me, then, John said disdainfully. I was told that this was a potentially lucrative position. I used to spend 200 gold on meals I didn't even eat. You'll have to do better than that if you want to attract any real talent. It's a damn good amount for less than two weeks of worth. work. <clears throat> you may have used to have been something impressive, John, but after what happened at the Battle of Blackheart Lagoon, you're not anything special anymore. Bill waited a moment, wondering if perhaps he'd gone too far, and decided to amend the statement somewhat by saying, But I'll tell you what, all three of you seem pretty skilled. I'll give you 300 ahead, but you won't get a better offer from me. I'm barely making anything now as it is. With that, the smuggler wiped his brow, hoping that his lies were less transparent than they felt. The three men considered their proposal for a bit. Shortly, the tattooed man nodded and reached out his hand completely enveloping the smuggler captain's own, and shaking it with slow and deliberate, but nonetheless very strong grip. It is done. I accept. A few moments later, the hooded priest nodded as well and raised his near-empty glass of wine. I agree as well, 
With that, he drained the rest of the glass, setting it back on the table and wiping his chin with a satisfied sigh, then offering his hand to shake the captain's as well. My name is Gregor. Uh, pleased to be working with you. John considered the matter for some time, even after that, until eventually Bill worked up the nerve to ask, And you, John, going to turn your nose up at free gold? The skeletal pirate looked up at the smuggler, the flames in his eyes narrowing, his voice hard. No, I'm in. Bill clapped his hands together as he rose swiftly, but not too swiftly. He could still feel the whiskey, if only just, from the table. Great. We leave port at dawn, so I recommend getting some sleep now. The ship is the gentry. Ask the harbor master, and he'll show you where. Don't be late. And with that, the smuggler departed, leaving the three men to consider their upcoming adventure. Now that we've got that out of the way, it's time to move on to the next section that we're going to do today, Game Mastery which, as you may know from previous podcasts, is where we give you a list of ten things that may be helpful for you in your game. Today, our ten tips are going to have something to do with rules lawyers, specifically how to deal with them when you finally get exasperated with all of their whining, whinging, and otherwise trying to get you to do things that you really don't want to do. Now, some of these are more serious uh, recommendations, and others are more the sorts of things that you might wish you could do to your rules lawyer to get him to stop. Uh, we're going to go ahead and leave it up to you to determine which one is which, though we recommend not breaking any state laws. Number one, create a but the rules say jar and force anyone who tries to argue about the rules to put a quarter or something in each time. When it fills up, buy pizza for the group. Number two, talk with your group in advance about the kind of campaign you want to run. Explain that you are more interested in a cool story and cinematic sequences and fun than in sticking to the letter of the rules, and that you reserve the right to change them from time to time as long as your players keep having fun. Let them have their input too, and if the group agrees, you've now established that DM Fiat overrules the rulebooks whenever fun is a factor. Number three, get hired at Wizards of the Coast or whoever publishes your game of choice and work your way through the ranks until you become the rules manager for the game. Then, call up your rules lawyer and explain to him that you now control his precious rules and that if he doesn't want to see the game broken into a million pieces, he will do as you say. Number four, talk with your group at the beginning of a session and explain that you feel that rules discussions are bogging down the game. Propose that from now on, when a rules dispute comes up, it is allotted at a maximum amount of time, say five minutes. After each side makes their piece, the DM will decide, or perhaps the group will vote on, how to rule it, and that's how it will be that day. At the end of the session, or between sessions, anyone is free to research the subject and bring the official ruling to your attention for future reference. Number five. Summon a devil and encourage it to offer a contract to your rules lawyer. When he agrees to the contract, thinking that his perfect knowledge of rules ease will allow him to find a loophole, cackle gleefully as his soul is dragged kicking and screaming into the nine hells for all eternity. Number six. Try a more rules light game, where the focus is already more on storytelling than on the rules themselves. While this might potentially frustrate your rules lawyer, it might also give him something to do besides worrying about whether or not the game is being played correctly. Each such game, some such games are Tristat, Fudge, and World of Darkness. Number seven, declare at the top of your lungs that you are the god of this world and not bound by any puny mortal laws. Don the cloak and rod of your office as DM and demand that the rules lawyer bow down before you and worship you. If he doesn't, break some furniture and banish him from the group forever. You can't allow that kind of insolence. Number eight, take the time to brush up on the rules yourself. As arbiter of the game, it doesn't hurt to have a good knowledge of the rules, and it's possible that your rules lawyer may only bring up issues because he's concerned that such things are being done incorrectly. If you familiarize yourselves with the rules, you can try to meet the rules lawyer in the middle. Number nine, 
take one of the rules lawyer's friends or family hostage and threaten to tase them anytime the rules lawyer disputes a ruling. Plus, their muffled sobs will add atmosphere to any horror campaign you may be running. Number 10. Talk to the rules lawyer one-on-one -on -one and explain that while you understand his concerns about the rules, you find the way he brings them up disruptive. Try to work out a compromise without necessarily making him feel on the spot by bringing the whole group in on the discussion. And now that we've got all 10 of those tips, some of which may be more useful for you than others, it's now time for us to move on to seed to story, where we continue to roll a die percent, check the 100 adventure ideas table in the 3.0 DMG, and then expand on the idea there into something a little bit more of an adventure. So why don't we go ahead and roll that now? Looks like we've got a hundred. What is that going to come out to? Lizard folk riding dragon turtles sell their services as mercenaries to the highest bidder. Wow, that is, uh, that is definitely an evocative one. So we've got lizard folk. They're riding dragon turtles, and they're for hire. And now we need to figure out how the PCs are going to get involved in this. The obvious way, of course, would be for the mercenary lizard folk to be being used by some sort of evil warlord or something who's attacking fishing villages and the PCs need to save the day. Yeah, but if you really want to have some fun, what you should have instead is crazy dragon turtle riding lizard folk mercenaries looking to expand their band. Let the PCs join up. So what sounds like I mean that sounds like a lot of fun to me and they can go on crazy mercenary quests, be pirates, that sort of thing. Perhaps they could even be lizardmen. You don't usually get a chance to be Lizardmen. In fact, uh, perhaps the entire campaign revolves not so much around lizard folk riding blah 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 mercenaries. Perhaps the entire campaign is, hey PCs, you are lizard folk, you're mercenaries, you have dragon turtles, let's have fun reptilian adventures. Yeah, I mean, set up for a really crazy sort of sandbox where uh, where the PCs get to uh, get to prove themselves as the ultimate lizard folk warriors, and what could be better than being mounted on dragon turtles? Obviously, uh, such a campaign would deal primarily uh, with the adventuring bands, uh, mercenary bands, attempt to become the most famous and high-priced mercenaries in the land. Uh, the individual adventures would probably be various jobs that they get hired for the most part, uh, but at the same time, as, as an overarching campaign, you could make sure that, that the PCs have opportunity to uh, fight rival mercenary groups and to prove that they're better, uh, perhaps to, uh, to talk up some influential nobles and try to sell uh, their image, and, and basically try to go from being some lizard folk in a tavern who happen to have uh, access to amphibious assault vehicles um, into a really feared and, and well-known mercenary game name in your campaign. Yeah, I mean, definitely that, that sets you up with a really nice sort of basic setup for, uh, for an enjoyable campaign where everybody's lizard folk mercenaries. Um, alternatively, uh, I suppose if you don't want your PCs to be lizard folk for whatever reason, or the, the group hates lizard folk, they want more intelligence or something, you know, you, you could run the uh, same or similar campaign where they all polymorph themselves to join the band, and that adds a uh, an additional layer of perhaps the lizard folk band doesn't like the warm bloods hanging around with them and they're looking to find the mole. Uh, or if you, they are just, you know, running around as crazy awesome lizard folk pirates, uh, you could run an adventure where somebody infiltrates their band and tries to sabotage them in the same kind of way. 
That's true. Uh, in fact, um, that would be that would be an excellent way, perhaps, to introduce uh, a a main rival mercenary band. Uh, could perhaps have uh, have a member uh, polymorphed into a lizard folk, join the band, and then uh, learn their secrets before betraying them. Then, uh, as as a sort of a add-on and as a main kind of combatant in the the course of that campaign, as they try to. Uh, as they try to make themselves into the most fearsome mercenary band in, in all the land, uh, they could have to deal with this other mercenary band who has previously embarrassed them by by breaking in and, and stealing all of their secrets and, of course, is well-armed with all of their secrets and probably has been established for longer. Sort of a, a rival band like the... Um, like the the bad guys from Indiana Jones, who are always there one step ahead of him, or or who who let him get the treasure only to snap it right out from from between his his fingers. Yeah, so you end up with a uh, with a main antagonist band for uh, for your mercenaries, and that gives you someone to uh, to struggle against in your in your campaign, give it more of a grandiose, conflicted feel than just running random mercenary jobs. Um, and then you know. As long as you got lizard folk riding uh, dragon turtles anyway, you could make these people like uh, I don't know halflings riding griffins, or, uh, or or any number of other crazy facets. It sounds like it's going to be kind of an interesting campaign. And then of course, as you get closer to the climax of the actual adventure, once the uh, once the mercenaries have established their dominance, uh, once the band of, of lizard folk blah 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 are are clearly the um, the the dominant mercenaries in the land. Uh, then you have the opportunity to challenge that position. You can have an up-and-coming uh, mercenary group, and the PCs may or may not be uh, be self-aware enough to realize the, the similarities to how they used to be very similar. Uh, perhaps a far more interesting conclusion to the adventure could come as, uh, as they now are powerful enough to start attracting concern from kingdoms and perhaps they're outlaw they're they're made into outlaws and they need to uh, they need to lay low or find some way to either clear their name or or get out of town before the uh, the entire king's army shows up to take them out uh and then once they sort of uh, complete that crisis and and become you know beloved or at least accepted uh mercenaries then then that would probably be a good place to to end the campaign but if you're still looking for adventure after that time, uh, there's there's no uh, it, it it can be very effective when you're moving from a so we've been rising stars forever and we're up and comers and now we're finally at the end and real powerful instead of just stopping, you know now that the PCs have got their power it may be time to start challenging them and using it correctly. There could be political issues they need to deal with in running a large mercenary group or they may have underlings now hirelings that they need to send out on tasks and they are perhaps rivals who come up within their own organization to challenge their positions so you could make them uh make them sort of play politics when everything's said and done that's true um in fact in a medieval society uh one of the best ways to pay mercenaries in the long run is to give them land uh so perhaps they uh, they find in the later parts of the campaign after they've been more legitimized uh, perhaps now they're not so much mercenaries as they are landed knights. Uh, perhaps they're they're handed the uh, you know sections of some swamp that no one else really wants, but is is perfect for lizard men. Uh, or or maybe they get better land than that. Whatever the case, they're now landed and they have to deal with uh, with having tenants and and feudal obligations and all of that. And that could definitely extend the life of that campaign into a very uh, much longer, if at that point somewhat different from where it started, sort of campaign. But it would still, uh, if the overall progression and idea is that uh, is that 
the mercenary band as a group is growing and flourishing into a, a real major power player and organization, then letting your PCs become landed knights or that sort of thing would, would really allow them to expand into that and they can have strongholds and, and all of that fun stuff as well. Um, yeah, so there you go. From, uh, from a handful of lizard folk in a tavern with a dragon turtle ally to, uh, to resource development and political uh, intrigue, in uh, in one crazy fun adventure with uh, with our scaly friends. All right. And now that we've finished our seed to story, it's time for the very very last thing before we go. Our poll of the week. So, we saw a lot of cheap items here on the show today, but we also met our deaths many many times. Do you think that you could do better? What's your favorite magic item for under six thousand GP? Drop by our forums or send us an email about it, and we'd love to know. Additionally, uh, just a quick reminder, um, if you enjoy Seed to Story but wish that we had some other options besides the Dungeon Master's Guide, perhaps you have some of your own adventure seeds you'd like to see us try and expand on, uh, don't be a stranger. Send us a line to, uh, to our editor, Rosa Gibbons, at rgibbons, G-I-B-B-O-N-S, at necromancers-online.com, and she will be sure to... Uh, to forward those to us obviously with the same amount of spontaneity and and without us knowing in advance what exactly they are so that we can continue to provide those sorts of off-the-cusp fun ideas that we've been giving you so far so with that out of the way we are now done for this week's podcast we look forward to seeing you next week when it will be conjuration week and in the meantime happy gaming people <laughs>